thank you. Good morning. You are the lovely people. Good morning, lovely people. It's great to see you. Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Mm. God's word in 1 Timothy um, affirms that firstly we should pray for kings and those in authority. So Father, this morning we just take a moment to pray for our government at this time. Father, we, we have concerns and Father, it's our prayer that you would raise up men and women of wisdom and character and integrity to lead our country. We pray for our leaders. Father, we pray too for the nation of Ukraine. We pray for those who are without their homes, without their loved ones. We ask that you would be the comforter and that you would provide comforters and resources and saints and people who can just get alongside and help them. And Father, we pray for justice for the nation of Ukraine. We pray, Father God, your kingdom to come over that country. And for ourselves now, Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, that you would open our minds and open our hearts and make us receptive to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're reading this morning from uh, Luke 22, and verse 31. It'll come up on the screen. The context here is we're at the Last Supper. We're overhearing the after-dinner conversation. They've been a bit argumentative about who's going to be the greatest, who's the tops. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, he's talking to Peter, and I'm going to call him Peter from here on, okay? You know, he was Simon, you'll be called Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. This pivot series is about people who met Jesus and how their lives were changed, the wonder of meeting Jesus, how their lives were turned around, pivoted. So why this passage? Why this event of Peter being tested? There were many earlier interactions, weren't there, between Jesus and Peter that we could have looked at. Why this one? Well, I've been rereading uh, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life alongside um, Daniel and Chris and Cam and Jack who were baptised at Easter and it's been a delight every week to see their reactions, their comments on our WhatsApp group. And I was particularly struck early in May by the chapter which sets out that our life here is firstly, our life here on earth is firstly a temporary assignment. Compared to eternity, it's very brief. It's just the practice workout before the actual game. Just the cover title and the page before the beginning of the really great story. And secondly, our life here is a test. 
And I was reading this chapter early in May while we were away, Julie and I, on one of those terrible, all-inclusive holidays. <laughs> you know, with unlimited food, and you see people like, pile up their plates at this glorious, gorgeous buffet. Some of them be walking away with two plates. An unlimited drink, as you lie on your sunbed at the side of the pool, about every half an hour, come, somebody comes by and says, would you like another cocktail, sir? It's really stressful. <laughs> and I gained, let's say, a deeper appreciation of how life is a test. From God's perspective, your life, my life, is a continuous program of tests. In our normal everyday lives, quite apart from the strains and stresses of a holiday, we're all being tested. Every decision, every choice is a test. And Peter is facing a test, a big one. Jesus tells Peter that he needs to turn back to repent, to pivot. Peter's not a new convert. He's not just met Jesus. He's been following and walking with Jesus and living and sharing life with him for three years. He's, I mean, he's, he's one of the three. He's part of the inner circle. This pivot is not about being converted. It's about being kept. For many of us, our Christian life probably for all of us, is not a gently upward-sloping linear path. I've been following Jesus for 57 years. And every morning, I pray in my walk with the dogs and words from Psalm 103, which include, you have redeemed my life from the pit. And I've been a number of pits in my life, a succession of them that Jesus has redeemed me from, and I give him thanks for that. Several years ago, right here, uh, we baptised a young man who has a great difficulty with addiction. I'll call him Fred. And Fred struggles with addiction, and when he falls with addiction, falls into his pit, sometimes he becomes violent, very violent. And in the last two months, he's had to go to court twice. But prior to him going to court... A number of people who care for him have interceded in the court of heaven because really the worst thing that would happen for him would be to get what was quite likely, which was a custodial sentence. But we went to the court of heaven and we prayed in advance that that wouldn't happen, but actually that something would happen that would help him get on and stay on and stay on and stay on the right track. And on both occasions, even though two separate charges, two separate occasions, two court cases, on the first occasion he got a sentence which was suspended. On the second occasion, he got a sentence which was suspended, which actually was a great outcome for him. He's turned to Jesus again, again, and Jesus is keeping him. And this incident with Peter is not about a conversion, it's about him being kept by Jesus. You know, Peter's not a new convert, yet apparently even he still needs to turn back. You know, sometimes it's those who are most practiced in religion who are the most blind. 
most inclined to think, I'm doing all right, aren't I? Turning around, seeing the light, coming to our senses, owning up to God and ourselves that what we are in is in the wrong. It's not a one-off thing. It's something which punctuates the life of every believer, every sincere follower of Jesus. Jesus is looking for followers who repent easily, who don't, necess- who don't hesitate to put up their hand, admitting, yeah, I-, I was wrong there, I'm sorry. It's not the mark of a saint to be concerned to be always right and to be seen to be right. Jesus is looking for followers who repent easily, who don't blame shift, who don't self-justify. Satan is always there, out to deceive us, seduce us, blind us. Peter was blind to his sin. He thought he was so on top of the game, didn't he? He was the faithful one. He was the strong one, the reliable one, top of the class, top gun. That was Peter. He would never let Jesus down. And what was the weapon? What was the weapon that Satan used to shoot the legs from under him? His favourite weapon, the one that comes up from behind, pride. Peter's failure, Peter's sin, wasn't that he denied knowing Jesus. It was his assertion that he never would. So what is Jesus saying here? Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. But I have prayed for you. What's going on? What's going on behind Jesus' statement? Jesus is telling Peter and us that he did something for Peter. What did he do? Well, he prayed. He prayed. He interceded. And where did he do it? He did it in the spiritual realm. In these three sentences spoken by Jesus to Peter, he pulls back the curtain on what is happening all the time in an unseen spiritual world where Satan's forces are demanding entrance into our lives. Jesus also reveals here his goodness, his love, his faithfulness as a friend to Peter. This is a journey into the deeper recesses of the heart of God. Jesus' intervention on Peter's behalf is a tipping point in history. How so? Well, bear with me. Everything in the spirit realm is about legalities. In Genesis, we learn God gave to mankind dominion. Legal dominion over the earth. He signed it over. But man, mankind, was deceived and seduced by evil, giving Satan a legal right to set up shop, to operate on the earth. Man's sin, our sin, my sin, gives Satan a legal right to be prince of this world. That's what Jesus called him. John 14, 20. God desires to bring his kingdom on earth. 
and to do so legally. And having given man dominion, God has ordained that it is through man that the kingdom of God will come to earth. Hence, God's son, divested of all his heavenly powers and privileges, came to earth to proclaim the coming of the kingdom as a man. He had to be a man. So it is in in the words of John Wesley that God has bound himself to do nothing on earth save in answer to prayer. That is, God does nothing unless we give him the legal right. The coming of God's kingdom on earth is subject to the will of man. Lives surrendered to his kingship bring in the kingdom of God. Satan also can do nothing unless it is legally allowed. We, as the people of earth, grant legal permission for either Satan to work or God to work. Thus, Jesus tells us, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The word bind there speaks of a binding legal contract. The word loose speaks of dissolving an existing contract. John, in Revelation, reporting his vision, tells us, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. John is seeing into the court of heaven, where Satan is the accuser. In the opening chapter of Job, we see activity in the court of heaven. Job is very virtuous. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan makes an accusation that Job only obeys God out of selfish motives, out of cupboard love. Yeah, of course, of course he loves you and obeys you and lives a good life. Look, look at all you've blessed him with. So God allows Satan a legal right to test Job. Similarly, now with Peter. Satan has asked for you to sift you. Asked for, the Greek there can literally be translated, has demanded for trial. He's saying Satan has come to the court of heaven to accuse you. Satan is the accuser of the brethren and the sister in. In Daniel's vision, he sees the court of heaven. I'm reading from Daniel 7, just briefly. As I looked, thrones were in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I think we could imagine that there is in heaven a book for each one of our lives. 
setting out God's desired destiny for each one of us. For example, we read in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Many of you will know Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you. We can imagine there's a book in heaven setting out God's desired destiny for each one of us. Now, Satan knows that Peter was destined by heaven to have a radical and a dramatic effect on the future of the earth. Satan understood the significant part that Peter was to play. If Satan didn't stop him, Peter will advance the kingdom and do massive damage to Satan's empire. Satan needs a scheme to stop Peter. And his plan is to bring Peter to court, disqualify Peter legally from what is written in his book, and block God's agenda for putting in place the kingdom of God on earth. So he looks for something about Peter that he can use to discredit Peter in the court of heaven. Legally speaking, sin has consequences. The Bible is very clear about that. When we sin, what are we doing? We're saying yes to Satan. We're giving him a license, a legal right to mess us up. And Peter has messed up. But Jesus has got his back. Jesus intercedes. I have prayed for you I've gone to the court of heaven on your behalf and I've interceded that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned back, when you've pivoted, strengthen your brothers. I've got work for you to do. Jesus is pulling back the curtain on what is happening all the time in an unseen spiritual world that we don't normally see into. He's telling us, that he went on Peter's behalf as his advocate to defend him against the accusations of Satan in the court of heaven. Satan brought evidence against Peter to try and thwart his God-given destiny. By going into the court of heaven on behalf of Peter, Jesus succeeded in securing the destiny written in the books of heaven for him. By interceding for Peter, Jesus rebuffed Satan's accusation and kept Peter's destiny secure. It worked. And you might be thinking, of course it worked. This was Jesus. Of course it worked. But remember, this was before the cross. Jesus hadn't yet won the victory. What Jesus did for Peter, he did as a mortal man. Among other passages in Philippians 2, we see that Jesus lived on earth as a mortal man. He emptied himself of all his heavenly powers and privileges. Everything he did, he did not as God, but as a man filled with God, filled with God's spirit. He didn't enter the court as a high priest. He didn't enter the court as name above all names. He'd not yet won that position. 
His intercession for Peter was as a man, filled with the Holy Spirit. Why emphasize that? Because Jesus did for Peter what we all can do. We too can intercede to change a destiny. Everything Jesus did as a man filled with God is legal for us to do. He said it explicitly in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Our intercessions can change destinies. And if you, want, if you want to lean into and learn more about this kind of prayer, I would, for example, commend the work of a man called Robert Henderson. Just Google, or your preferred search engine, Robert Henderson. <laughs> Robert Henderson. Of course, Peter did turn back, and Jesus did commission him to lead the church and feed his sheep. Peter would face many tests in future, which, as we see in the Bible record, he excelled at. What about us? Do we face tests? Yes, we do. All day long. All sorts of tests. And I can't this morning talk about all of them, so I'm just going to talk about one, which I feel led to talk about. One test we face frequently is... Will I be honest? Will I speak the truth? Our world is suffering an epidemic. It's an epidemic of deceit, an epidemic of lies. Are you irritated, as I am, at the barefaced lies that come out of Moscow? Do you know the Russians have a word, a special word for a particular kind of lying? It's when you lie and you know it, and you know that everyone else knows it, but you don't care. It's called veraniel. Veraniel. It's not the normal word for lying, it's a special kind of lying. It's, it's like, it's that, you know, the dog at my homework, sir, kind of lie. You know, the agents who, the Russian agents who committed the Sainsbury, the Sainsbury, <laughs> the Salisbury poisonings. We just, we just came to see the famous cathedral. That's Baranio. It's kind of systematic lying. But perhaps you're even more concerned and frustrated at our own government and its leader. And I'm not making a political statement, but I will mention what a recent Times article called the creeping normalization of deceit. Yeah? I know I'm lying, you know I'm lying, but I don't care. 1 Timothy 2.2 tells us, as a first priority to pray for kings and those in authority. Our first priority in prayer, according to God's word, is to pray for good government. And should we be following that instruction? Yeah, we should, personally 
and I believe corporately, that our leaders would be men and women of wisdom and integrity, and that they'd be good leaders. But what about you? How easily does a half-truth, an exaggeration, slip through your lips? Hmm? Are you in any doubt as to whether our God takes honesty and integrity seriously? If so, I'll remind you of the little story in Acts 5. Here's a couple doing a good thing. They're doing something sacrificially. They're doing it for the right reasons. And God struck them dead. Why? Because they told a lie. It seems God does have concerns when his children lie. We worship and serve a God who only ever always tells the truth. And expects his children, his servants, to do the same. You know, when your wife says in an accusing voice, oh, did you do so and so? And you instinctively just reply, oh, yes. And then you think, oh, gosh, did I? <laughs> you know, or you're late for something. You're late for a meeting. It's a bit embarrassing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I'm late. And the train was 10 minutes late. And you say, oh, the train was 25 minutes late. It's not true. It's an exaggeration. It's not true. The trouble with a lie is that it so often leads you into having to tell another lie and another lie to cover it. What about your expenses claim? Is everything on there every month strictly accurate? No exaggeration, nothing slipped in. What about your tax return? Are all those entries accurate? God honours those who honour him. Is it time to pivot and resolve to always, only, ever tell the truth? It really is the best way to live because there's no fear. There's no fear of the consequences. There's no fear of being found out. There's no fear of ramifications. There's no fear of the ripples. There's no fear of the knock on the door. And if you practice this, you'll find, and I'm sure many of you do, you'll find when a little lie or an exaggeration just slips out, you'll really notice it. And you'll find you just want to go back and put it right. Because you've resolved to always only ever tell the truth. But if you tell little lies easily, you'll find over time they get bigger. Integrity, honesty, it's just one of many kinds of tests that we face in life. One of many areas in life where perhaps we need to resolve, where we need to pivot. Perhaps honesty is something you're already 10 out of 10 on. What is it that you struggle with? What is it that's trying to get or has got a stronghold over you? What is it that where you need to pivot, because it's an ongoing process. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. He's called us to be pure, to be holy. But integrity is just 
one example. There are many others, some major, some minor, some big, some small. One major test is what are you trusting? What are you trusting? Where's your hope? What are you trusting for the future? And I don't mean the next 10 years or for your pension. I mean the next 10 million years. What are you trusting? Because our life here, our reality here, is a temporary assignment. It could end tomorrow. I pray that it doesn't. But the next reality is eternal. What are you hoping will qualify you to pass the final test? If you're hoping to have accumulated enough credit on the good side to scrape a pass, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Many seem to think so, but our place in eternity is not earned by the good outweighing the bad. We can't pass this test, and we don't have to, because Jesus passed it for us with flying colours. As Peter declares at Pentecost in Acts 2, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? Only the blood of Jesus. What can make me clean within? Only the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And from Hebrews we read, For by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who are being made holy. Holy.